This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Wool. As we mentioned last week, it's that time of the year again. Holiday time. And that means all of our favorite holiday traditions. And here at the Word of the Week offices, those mainly include arguing about whether Christmas is a humbug and whether people who go around saying Merry Christmas should be boiled in their own pudding and whether our producer is finally going to break down and steal Christmas and throw it off a mountain like he's been threatening all of these years. But apart from those, it also means that it's time for one of the most garish and obnoxious of holiday things to emerge from dusty closets. No, not Christmas decorations. We're talking about ugly Christmas sweaters or Christmas jumpers to our British listeners. If you're somehow unaware of what an ugly Christmas sweater is, it's a sweater. You know, a knitted top made of wool and or synthetic fibers. It is brightly colored, garish, usually featuring reds and greens, and occasionally light blues and whites. And they're decorated in a Christmas motif. Reindeers, elves, Christmas trees, Santa, snow, that kind of thing. And they're generally supposed to look handmade. Specifically, so the tradition goes, they're supposed to look like a Christmas sweater hand-knitted and proudly gifted by a fashion-unconscious grandparent. Except these days, they aren't hand-knitted at all. They probably never were. They're mostly store-bought. And they aren't worn grudgingly out of an obligation to not hurt an octogenarian gift-giver's feelings. They're worn, as the kids say, ironically. Now, we don't truck with that whole ironic enjoyment thing. We're too old for that. But we do have to discuss the ugly sweater phenomenon, mainly because according to a number of periodicals, including Time Magazine, there's been a noticeable increase in ugly Christmas sweater sales and events. For example, since 2002, the entire city of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada holds an annual ugly sweater party. And the co-founders of the event, Jordan Birch and Chris Boyd, even trademarked the phrase ugly Christmas sweater. And as much as we want to make fun of the whole thing, we can't. Because the whole thing is a big charity event that supports the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Canada. Fair enough. Now, the ugly Christmas sweater thing is a recent phenomenon. But the Christmas sweater, it turns out, is a little older. Not much older, in historical terms. And to discuss the phenomenon in detail, we have to talk about something that may make a few people uncomfortable. And so, we have to include this brief disclaimer. We here at the Word of the Week consider ourselves to be amateur historians, pop culture historians, and we are dedicated to truth, accuracy, and intellectual honesty as much as any amateurs can be. And that means, sometimes, discussing things that are uncomfortable. We are aware that William Henry Cosby Jr., a.k.a. Bill Cosby, has recently been accused of some pretty heinous crimes, including sexual assault, and we neither forgive nor condone the crimes he has committed. But we cannot simply ignore his contribution to the American pop culture landscape of the 1980s. We start erasing things from our history, even our trivial history. We cannot understand our history. If we do not know where we came from, we cannot know ourselves. We apologize if this makes you uncomfortable. Young people wearing ugly sweaters today are likely doing so in an attempt to poke some fun at the fashion choices of their parents during their formative years. And that's because about 30 to 35 years ago, there was a huge surge in sweater wearing, especially Christmas sweater wearing. The difference? They weren't called ugly sweaters. 
But what's really funny is that surge repeated an earlier surge that had hit 30 years prior. It just amped it up to 11. In the United States in the 1950s, two things happened simultaneously to create a sudden market for Christmas sweaters. That is precisely when the first mass-produced Christmas sweaters were marketed under the name Jingle Bell Sweaters. The first thing was, with the increased prosperity and focus on home and suburban life in the 1950s, Christmas was becoming a bigger, more commercial event. It had been trending that way for a while, sure, but it sort of peaked in the 1950s. At the same time, on TV there was this new type of show, the Situation Comedy. That was a television show that ran for about a half hour and involved the day-to-day life of a small cast of characters based on a simple setup or situation. Now, in the late 1940s, sitcoms were popular but simple. And then along came a clever couple of television producers and actors. Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball had this neat idea for filming a television show. What if you filmed it with multiple cameras? and you edited the footage together. That way, you could show a character speaking with a close-up on their face, and then show another character's reaction. The approach was revolutionary, and they created and starred in their own sitcom filmed using this technique, I Love Lucy. And that show pretty much created the sitcom genre that became hugely popular in the 50s. What does that have to do with sweaters? Well, one of the major themes in the 1950s was suburbanization. Families were moving out of the cities and into not-quite-urban, not-quite-rural communities. You know, houses, picket fences, a car in every garage, and a chicken in every pot. And with that came a new focus on the nuclear family. And so, the family sitcom took off. And for whatever reason, a sweater or button-down cardigan just became the trademark wear of the father figure in such shows, at least for casual home wear. And as people imitated the styles they saw on TV, mass-produced sweaters started to sell very well. And at Christmas time, so did the Jingle Bell sweater. Eventually, the family sitcom fell by the wayside. In the 60s and 70s, it was supplanted by adventure, fantasy, and then science fiction and animation. In some cases, These shows included loving, or not-so-loving, parodies of the older family sitcom. Examples include Lost in Space, The Flintstones, and The Jetsons. The family sitcom fell into a lull. Meanwhile, during the mid-late 60s through the 1980s, another form of entertainment was starting to take hold in the United States. Stand-up comedy. Basically, a comedian would stand at a microphone in front of an audience and tell funny stories or make humorous observations. This was the heyday of some of the most renowned stand-up comedians of all time. And many, many forgotten ones. And one of the most popular of the day was William Henry Cosby Jr. Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1937 to William Cosby Sr., a Navy steward, and Anna Pearl. While he was a talented athlete in school, he was also a renowned goofball, a class clown. That affected his grades badly. Despite being enrolled in private schools and college prep schools, his failure to take his school life seriously led him to flunk out. 
Failing to graduate high school, he enlisted in the Navy and worked as a hospital corpsman, where he ultimately ended up providing physical therapy for sailors and marine corpsmen injured in the Korean War. Determined to turn his life around after leaving the Navy, he attained his GED and enrolled at Temple University on a track and field scholarship, where he studied physical education. To earn some extra money, he got a job tending bar at a Philadelphia club. His charm and good humor helped him earn sizable tips, and eventually, he tried his hand at stand-up comedy at the behest of some of his customers. Soon thereafter, he left Temple University to pursue stand-up comedy full-time. Cosby's renown on the comedy circuit landed him several television roles, most notably in the 1965 espionage series I Spy. And as such, he was the first African-American to have a starring role in a dramatic weekly television series. He then starred in shows like Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids and The Bill Cosby Show, both of which had excellent ratings. But these shows didn't quite do what he wanted them to do. He had always been a strong proponent of family-friendly comedy and family values, and he wanted more direct control. And so it was that in 1984, The Cosby Show aired. The Cosby Show was a progressive family situation comedy about an upper-middle-class African-American family. The father, Cliff Huxtable, played by Cosby, was a successful obstetrician and gynecologist. The mother, Claire, was an accomplished attorney. Together, they had to find ways to balance their careers, their relationship, and raising their five children. The show battered down popular stereotypes about African-American families on TV, showing them as wealthy, successful, in respected careers, and with mixed-race peer groups. Cosby retained a great deal of creative control. He wasn't just the star. He was a co-producer and a writer, and many of the scripts were based on his ideas. The show was remarkably popular and it had three long-lasting effects on television in the 1980s beyond its progressiveness and focus on family values. First, it completely revived the family sitcom and paved the way for new shows like Full House to get made. While there were already some family sitcoms like Family Ties on the air, they weren't doing so well until The Cosby Show came along and gave the medium the shot in the arm it needed. Second, it basically laid the foundation for the genre of TV starring popular stand-up comedians in shows based on their stand-up comedy, so that things like Seinfeld and Home Improvement could come along. And third, it drastically increased sweater sales. We kid you not, Cliff Huxtable's trademark attire included garish, brightly colored sweaters and cardigans. And at Christmas time, they included the all-but-forgotten Jingle Bell sweater. Throughout the 80s, the sweater became very popular, more so than even in the 50s, and the Jingle Bell sweater became a hot commodity at Christmas time. And that's why so many kids remember their parents wearing ugly Christmas sweaters 35 years ago, because of Bill Cosby, Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball, and the invention of television. But we digress. Man, do we digress. Because none of that is of any use in fantasy games, is it? Well, there is one aspect of the ugly Christmas sweater that goes back a lot longer. Not 30 years. More like 30,000 years ago. 
and maybe even longer. And that's the stuff that's used to make those ugly sweaters. Woven yarn made of wool. Wool is one of the oldest things on earth you could make clothes out of, and it was one of the two most common things to make clothing out of in Europe throughout the Middle Ages. So it's exactly the sort of thing you'd expect a Dungeons & Dragons character to wear. But since we're on the subject of very old textiles, we might as well also mention the other old thing to make clothes out of. Linen is a textile made of woven fibers from the flax plant. Flax or Linum usitatissimum is a plant of the Linacea family. It's a herbaceous annual plant with a pretty blue flower. The seeds, called flax seeds or linseeds, are nutritious and oily, and so can be cultivated for food or to make a plant oil from. And the plant's leaves can be separated into thin strands or fibers that can then be spun together into a thick, strong cord. The fibers can also be interwoven into flat sheets, and that's called linen. Flax is a pretty hardy, durable plant, and it can grow in lots of different climates. The first evidence of the use of flax to make linen comes from a prehistoric cave in modern Georgia. The one in Eurasia, not the one in North America. A bunch of preserved, dyed flax fibers were found there. And they're about 36,000 years old. We've also found fragments of seeds, fibers, and yarns that are at least 10,000 years old in caves in modern Switzerland. And we've also found it wrapped around mummies in ancient Egyptian tombs. See, Egyptians loved linen. It's a nice soft fabric that gets softer with each washing and it's cool to the touch and breathes well. They loved it so much that it was even used as a currency in some cases. In Mesopotamia, they also loved it, so much so that it was reserved for use by the upper classes. And Phoenician traders spread linen and flax growing across Europe. I'm pretty sure that's how the Irish got started with linen. Now, even though we know people were making clothes out of linen as far back as 36,000 years ago, we know that people were wearing clothes before they discovered linen. We know that people started clothing themselves around 150,000 years ago. Long before hominids even left Africa, discovered agriculture, and decided that civilization was the way to go. How do we know this? Because of lice. The louse, plural lice, is a blood-sucking parasite. The most well-known form, which strikes terror in the hearts of parents and elementary school teachers alike, is the head louse. These tiny insects lay their eggs, called nits, in human hair. In fact, head lice nits are specially adapted to attach to human hair. After one or two weeks, the nits hatch into lice nymphs, which are basically just smaller versions of adult lice. That's when they start biting the skin and feeding on the blood of the scalp. After two weeks, the nymph grows into an adult, whereupon they mate, lay eggs, and keep the cycle going. What does this have to do with clothes? Well, there's another type of louse. The body louse. The body louse is basically just like the head louse, except for one small difference. You guess what it is? If you said their eggs don't attach to hair, you're right. Do you think it had something to do with heads and bodies? Well, it actually sort of does. See, body louse eggs are adapted to attach to some other kind of surface. 
They don't grab onto hair, and that means they can't lay eggs in human hair. What they can lay eggs in is human clothing. They're basically lice that spread out from the head, migrated, and figured out how to attach eggs to clothes and get access to blood all over the human body. And if humans shared clothes, they could spread themselves farther and wider. Of course, for that to work, humans need to be wearing clothes. And using some very complex techniques involving genetic mapping and retroviral tracking, we have determined that body lice evolved from head lice about 100 to 150,000 years ago. And that means we know people were wearing clothing at least as far back as that. Now, the oldest clothes were made of natural materials simply tied together. Those included animal skins, furs, grasses, leaves, bones, and shells. And we know that people have been sewing these things together for 50,000 years. We found evidence of sewn hides and needles made out of animal bone. But that stuff doesn't count as textiles. The first real textile, as far as we know, is felt. Now, felt making is an old technology. We don't know precisely how old because, well, like all soft material, it doesn't preserve well in the fossil record. We don't know how it was invented because the oldest civilizations were using felt before they started writing stuff down, so the only written accounts are crazy legends. Like, for example, the Sumerians who claim that their legendary warrior hero Ernaman of Lagash discovered it during his travels in a far-off land, or the Christian tales of how St. Clement or St. Christopher accidentally invented felt-soled sandals while fleeing from persecution. We found preserved felt caps from the Bronze Age, and we know ancient nomads made rugs and tents out of felt. Heck, there was even a workshop in Pompeii that made felt hats and gloves before that incident with the volcano ruined the market. Now, felt is a fabric made from pressing wool together. There are many ways to do it, wet felting, needle, carroting, nuno felting. They all basically work the same way. You take a bunch of wool and you smush it together so that the individual wool fibers get all tangled up together, and then you flatten it out. This works because wool fibers are made of small scales of a protein called melanin. If the scales open up and spread out a bit, like a lizard puffing itself up, they can get all snared up together. All of the various felting techniques involve using water or barbed needles or whatever to get those scales to open up and snarl together. Now, felt is all well and good, but as you can imagine, it makes for some pretty rough wear and itchy clothes, and it isn't very durable. But it worked. It wasn't until much later on that people discovered cording or spinning. That is to say, stretching out the individual fibers and then twisting them all together into string. And then you could interweave two long strings, interlacing them at right angles to make a nice, durable textile. The actual fabric doesn't matter. You could do that with flax. That's exactly how the first linens were made. And you could do it with wool. Of course, you needed wool. Now, we think of wool as coming from sheep. But in truth, wool is basically just animal hair. You can get wool from sheep or goats or camels or oxen or bison or pretty much any animal with hair. In fact, different types of wool come from different animals. Cashmere and mohair are wools made from goat hair. Angora is rabbit wool. The first wools were probably salvaged from the skins of hunted animals, 
which is how people were making felt so many thousands of years ago. But textiles like linen and wool really took off with the development of two important technologies. First, there was agriculture. That let us grow all the flax we wanted to harvest the seeds and fibers. Second, there was animal domestication. In point of fact, sheep were probably one of the very first animals humans ever domesticated. Well, okay, they didn't technically domesticate the sheep. Around 11,000 BCE, in Mesopotamia, there was this animal called the mouflon, or Ovis orientalis. That name means sheep of the east, in case you were wondering. Well, the animal was probably called a mufro or a mufra, depending on whether it was a boy mouflon or a girl mouflon. But the 18th century French naturalist Buffon recorded it as mouflon. Possibly so it could rhyme with his name, though we doubt it. They were rugged, hairy, horned animals, quite sure-footed. They proved easy to domesticate, and they could survive just about anywhere. And they were good eating. Oh, and the females made lots of milk, which was good drinking. So herds of them became popular among both nomads and early agrarians. But then, someone also figured out that you could shave their hair off and make felt or cord, yarn, and wool from them. And the hair would grow back. And that was very convenient. Especially if you lived in a place where you couldn't grow linen. And so, people started to breed the hairiest, wooliest mouflons they could. And around about 6,000 years ago, the first examples of the modern woolly sheep or Ovis Aries started to appear. And because of their docility, ease with which they reproduced, their hardiness, and the value of their meat, milk, and wool, sheep became pretty much the killer app of domestication. In 50 CE, the Romans spread sheep to the British Isles and across Europe. They even established a huge wool-shearing facility in Winchester, England. And by 1000 CE, England, along with Spain, would be making huge amounts of money from the wool trade. By the 17th century, one of the richest of Spain's merchant families, the Mesta, would corner the market on wool. And you know where the story goes from here. Someone invents television. Desi and Lucy revolutionize the sitcom. Bill Cosby reinvigorates the sitcom. And now you get to wear an ugly Christmas sweater to a Canadian charity party, ironically. It's funny how things work out sometimes. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.